hottest topics of recent years has been discussion of relations between Islam and the West. And there's been a lot of speculation about this, about the past and what it means for the future. But we want to get some accurate information and a clear picture of what it could be. We have to look no further than the place where these two civilizations really had the most contact. And that is the part of Western Europe which was once ruled by the Muslims. And that, of course, is Iberia. Today's Spain and Portugal, or it was known as the time El Andalus. Now, if you've noticed throughout this series, every time we talk about the Muslim Empire, we always say stretching from Spain in the West to India or the borders of China in the East. Well, in this episode, we're going to start to talk about Spain in the West, not only because it was the furthest reach of the Islamic Empire, but because this was a key node of transfer of information, of culture, of ideas between Islam and the West in both directions. And this is one of the greatest intellectual centers of the Middle Ages in a place where the ideas of Islam and the West came together. And so that will be our subject today and in the next few episodes. We're going to talk about the glories of Islamic Spain. So please stay with us. In our previous episodes, we have followed the Fatimid Caliphs right up to the brink of the Crusades. And while you might be excited to get right into those conflicts, we're going to shift gears a little bit here and look at some of the other parts of the Muslim world. And today we're going to begin by talking about one of the cultural centers of the Muslim world, and that is El Andalus, or as it's often called, Muslim Spain. Although actually, we'll be talking about what includes today Spain and Portugal. So this is often an unfair uh, diss on Portugal by not including them. But when we say Muslim Spain, we're talking about the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. During the entire period of the Abbasid Caliphate, a separate kingdom, and yes, later a caliphate of his own, was flourishing in Spain. And this is why so often we talk about the glories of Baghdad and we throw in Cordoba in Spain. It was through Spain, more than anywhere else, that the contributions of Muslim scholarship and culture impacted Europe. And its fall to the Christian reconquest was going on roughly the same time as the Crusades and was very much a huge blow to the Muslim Empire, just as the Crusades were. And so that's our subject today. So, before we talk about Muslim Spain, or El Andalus, we should mention why this is important. This is really one of the most significant parts of the Muslim world for a number of reasons. And we've held off from talking about it because we want to give it its own separate treatment, largely because it does have its own separate history. I mean, we can talk about the Umayyad Caliphate as a whole. We can talk about the Abbasid and the Fatimid Caliphates as a whole. But really, Spain, particularly from the time it breaks off from the uh, Abbasid Caliphate, is going to be really its own kingdom and later its own caliphate. And so it's important to look at that history uh, really by itself. And so that's what we'll be doing for the next couple of episodes. Today, we're going to lay the groundwork. How did this piece of Europe become part of the Muslim Empire? And why did it stop there? And why is it not part of the Muslim Empire today? So we're going to look at first a couple of reasons why uh, El Andalus is so important to history. 
First, this is the only major area conquered by the Muslims that was later lost and converted to another religion. So even when the caliphates fell and other powers with different religions colonized and took over parts of their empire, uh, the populations remained Muslim. So, uh, for example, much of India was under the control of the Muslim empire. Well, it later lost control of that and eventually the British would come in and rule uh, what was once the Muslim part of India. Uh, but for the most part, of course, there were some conversions to Christianity, but for the most part, it has remained uh, Muslim to this day, and that, that area primarily became Pakistan. We can talk about the same things, where the areas that fell to the Turks and the Mongols, more often than not, even though they controlled those areas politically, uh, they remained Muslim, and in fact, it would be Turks and Muslims themselves who would convert. But Spain is a different story. Spain not only converted back to Christianity, but it was arguably one of the most zealous powers in the Christian world. And I think you'd have a hard time coming up with a, a rival for that. We think of the Spanish Inquisition and the conquistadors in the Americas and so on. And this is remarkable because we don't see another place that was so completely lost to Islam after having been such an important kingdom. Secondly, Al-Andalus was an important hub for cultural, scientific, and philosophical transfer from the Muslim world to Europe. Now, we talk a lot about the huge debt that Western thought and culture has to Islam, and you've heard that many times on this show. But it's really in Al-Andalus where most of this happens. Uh, Sicily in the Mediterranean becomes another important hub later on. In contact with Byzantium, which uh, boiled into conflict very frequently, but was often uh, a source of trade and exchange of ideas, was another. And ironically, one of the biggest sources of Islamic thought and culture going to the West was through the Crusades. But Al-Andalus undoubtedly has to be the champion in this regard. This is definitely the biggest hub of all. A third reason it's so important is this was a distinct Muslim civilization. Yeah, it had a lot in common with the Abbasid and Fatimid caliphates, but the caliphate in Al-Andalus would have a distinct literary, musical, and probably above all, architectural style that remains famous today. Now, we've discussed many episodes how the Umayyad caliphate was overthrown by the Abbasids after it only lasted a century, but that's only partially true. So you may wonder, what's, what else is only partially true in this uh, series? The Umayyads did lose their major caliphate, but they hung on to Spain and they flourished there. In fact, they lasted longer in Spain than either the Abbasids or Fatimids would last with their caliphates. So this really becomes, in its own right, a distinct uh, Muslim civilization. I mean, just like we can talk about Christian European civilization, but we have to realize, of course, France is not Russia, is not Poland, is not Sweden or Britain. And also, very importantly, what we consider today to be Spanish civilization was really a fusion of the Christians who conquered Al-Andalus and the Muslims who were driven out. Now, I always get in an argument when I bring this up with a uh, historians of Europe or uh, teachers of Spanish, but the idea really of a distinct Spanish civilization existing before the Muslim conquest, I mean, it's an illusion. And the very uh, treasured idea of the Spanish reconquest of Spain or the Reconquista is really uh, an illusion. I mean, you can't reconquer something that you didn't have in the first place. It were Goths and Vandals who were expelled in the 8th century by the Muslims. Now, the people who would return uh, would eventually develop into the Spaniards. There was no such thing as a Spanish language at that time. The Christians who very, very slowly drove the Muslims out, and this is an important part of it, a very slow process going from north to south would evolve into the Spanish and Portuguese cultures that we know today. And their interaction with the Muslims, which was very often peaceful and productive exchange as much as it was conflict, would help develop those um, cultures. 
By 1492, when the last Muslims were driven out of Al-Andalus, a distinct Spanish identity had evolved. But it owes a lot to the Muslims. Now, for example, when I was a kid, I knew nothing about the Arab world. I mean, it just wasn't taught in the 1970s in America. So my first glimpse of places like Morocco struck me by how similar they looked to Spain. The, the architecture, uh, the artistic design, the tiles and everything. It, to me, it looked very Spanish. And of course, probably the most famous tourist site in Spain is the Alhambra, a Muslim palace, which means the red in Arabic. In fact, 10% or more of Spanish words are of Arabic origin. You may notice that the word al means the in both languages. That's not a coincidence. If you go to some place like Egypt, everybody will call you ustad as a um, term of honor. You may note how similar that is to the Spanish word usted. It's the same word. Okay, the pronunciations have changed. Now, just a moment ago, you may have been struck when I said the year 1492. Well, all American school kids know what 1492 is. That's the day when Columbus sailed to America, sponsored by the Spanish monarchs. That was no coincidence. The fact that the Muslims were finally driven out of Spain, and the Spanish then controlled all of Spain, and that they immediately turned to expansion overseas, uh, was not a coincidence. It was a continuation of the same process. So when we look at uh, what the Spanish did, good, bad, or otherwise, whatever you want to call it, the incredible uh, Spanish uh, spread, let's say, uh, throughout the Americas and their influence there, I mean, this was a process that largely got started with the reconquest or driving out of Muslims from uh, what was then El Andalus. Now, as I said, uh, Spanish teachers will argue with me on this, but I mean, it's very hard to look at the facts and, and not see that. But last and probably most importantly for us today, uh, El Andalus is often held up as a model of what Muslim-Christian relations can be. I mean, yeah, there was a conquest at the beginning, at the end, uh, but for over seven centuries, Christians, Muslims, and Jews exchanged ideas and worked together on important areas of science, philosophy, and the arts. And within this state, there was a lot of tolerance. For much of the time, uh, the actual fighting was individual Christian lords allied with certain Muslim lords against other Muslim lords and Christian rulers. So there was an awful lot more politics than uh, religious crusading going on. And also when we look at the last few centuries of the Muslim presence in El Andalus, that should give us a little bit of humility in the West. The Spanish Reconquista and what followed hardly paints uh, a picture of Christian Europe in a good light. Along with the bloodshed, uh, there was the Alhambra Decree, again, named after that famous uh, Arab palace, issued by the famous mer uh, monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, which required everyone to convert to Christianity or leave Spain, or die if you didn't. Now, in fact, over 200,000 Jews were forcibly converted. And it said that there were so many ships full of Jews who were leaving Spain and going primarily to Muslim Morocco, they filled the harbors so much that Christopher Columbus had to delay his departure from Spain by six months. Now, this sounds like a very odious law passed in 1492 that requires everyone to forcibly convert to Christianity or else. But here's the interesting fact. This law was not repealed until 1968. That's right, I didn't stutter, 1968. In fact, I was alive, that was 50 years ago. Okay. And of course, the momentum of the Reconquista led directly to the Spanish conquests and conversion of the Americas and what happened uh, to the native populations there. And of course, the Inquisition, uh, which was uh, famous in Spain. Now, these facts are often overlooked and downplayed by people in the West, but let me tell you, they are never forgotten in the Muslim world. They are well, well, well remembered. So uh, the very simplistic uh, visions we see uh, people preaching about, about one religion being peaceful and the other one being violent, I mean, it's, 
history certainly does not bear that up. And when we look at El Andalus, uh, we definitely get an idea that that is a very simplistic and not applicable interpretation. But more importantly, when we look at seven centuries of Al Andalus, the idea that these two faiths are inevitably locked in conflict and can't work together, I mean, is just uh, blown away. So I'm sure by now you're convinced. So let us now turn to look at the 780-year Muslim experience in Spain. All right, the year 711 was not the founding of a convenience store, but was at the height of the Muslim conquest. So let's just rewind a little bit because I know that episode was a long time ago. But the Umayyad dynasty, which essentially took over from the first caliphs, had been in power for about 50 years. And by this time, we're about 80 years from the death of the prophet Muhammad. Well, if you remember all the way back to the episode on the conquest, they had an amazing string of victories that took them all the way out to Morocco. In fact, it was unprecedented in history. Now, it's not automatically clear whether they intended to continue on into Europe or not. Now, of course, we discussed the concept of Dar es Salaam, which meant that eventually the whole world was going to become Muslim, or under the control of Muslim government. And history up to that point had been constant conquest and expansion. So the idea that the conquests were going to continue on to the next possible location uh, certainly made sense. But that it would be Spain was not necessarily obvious. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is there's the Mediterranean Sea in between. Uh, why not go down into Africa? So that was one consideration. Uh, on the other side, though, the Umayyads were ostensibly provoked into crossing into Spain. And so they did it not outright for the purpose of conquest, but because of some incidents that happened between the Visigoths in Spain and Morocco. But we shouldn't place all of our stock into that, because most of the conquests had some immediate justification like that. We do have to look at the big picture. So in any case, uh, whether they intended to go to Spain or not, whether they wanted to go somewhere else or not, the situation in 711 would give uh, the Umayyad dynasty the opportunity to expand into Spain. Another big factor that historians always bring up, and this we know to be true, is that the place that the Umayyads really wanted to take over was Constantinople. That was number one on their list. And they got right up to it, uh, but were never able to conquer it. And that was always the biggest thorn in their side. And so expansion went to other places. It went out to Persia and into uh, Central Asia, down into South Asia. It spread well into Africa and eventually would go on out into Southeast Asia and in this case it's going to go up into Southern Europe. But the place they really really wanted to go was to take over the uh, city of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. They were not able to do that so we can look at El Andalus as being one of the many outlets uh, that they went to when they weren't able to do that. Okay so let's look at the situation in 711. Now, at this time, Iberia was ruled by the Visigoths. Now, the Vandals had been major players there before, but they had been driven out. And this is where the Arabic word Al-Andalus comes from. It's a corruption from Vandals. And so this is another uh, reason why, although the Romans had given the name Hispania to this region, um, the name Al-Andalus shows that the Vandals had been very important there. So the idea that there was a Spain that was taken over uh, is very artificial. I mean, the Visigoths who ruled Spain were no more Spanish than, say, Julius Caesar was Italian. So here again, the Muslims believed they were going into an area which people called the land of the Vandals. Now, neither the Visigoths nor the Vandals are remembered today for their charity and kindness. They were, broadly speaking, part of what is known in European history as the, quote, barbarian invasions that included people like Attila the Hun. Uh, now, nowadays, the term barbarian is considered vulgar. 
and we prefer to use other terms, but let's face it, it didn't come about for nothing. Now, interestingly, originally, the word barbarian, like the word Berber, uh, came from Greek, and it meant people whose language you couldn't understand, and it was sort of Berber, Berber, meaning a, a, a babbling sound you couldn't understand. So barbarian and Berber originally had meant the same thing. These were people on the fringes of the empire who were foreign. Now, the fact that one of those terms today is a universal word for brutal and destructive hordes, while the other is best known as the name of a charming set of rugs, uh, tells you something. Okay, Associations are lumped onto them because of what happened. Now, likewise, the word vandal only came to mean someone who destroys things for fun because of what that tribe did. Okay? A person who smashes windows is known as a vandal because of what the vandals did. So, in any case, there is no question that the quality of life and civilization, however you define that very politically incorrect term, took an enormous backward step from the Roman province of Hispania to the Visigothic Kingdom. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go over it uh, here today, but uh, of course, the, the greatest podcast on the fall of the Roman Empire is uh, Patrick Wyman's The Fall of Rome, and he really goes into a lot of detail uh, on just the numbers and statistics to show how life for the average person who was living in the Roman Empire took a definite backward step uh, when the barbarian invasions came. And there are Examples we know of well-built cities of marble laying in ruins. People went back into hills, into you know, villages, into subsistence farming, and roaming bands replaced Roman legions and government officials. So, although it is uh, quite politically incorrect today to rank civilizations in terms of how cultured and we feel that they are, we have to say that the Visigoths and the Vandals taking over Spain was not really a boom for the people who lived there. But while one empire had collapsed, another one, a larger one in fact, was expanding towards Iberia. In many ways, it would bring an elaborate administrative, economic, and legal system to rival or surpass that of the Roman Empire, and with all the trappings of high culture and arts that in many cases exceeded the Romans. So it's important to remember that we're not talking here about a Muslim empire conquering a land of, quote, savages. Hispania had been part of a great civilization, really one of the greatest civilizations the world had seen. They had uh, an elaborate infrastructure. They had an elaborately developed culture. And there were enough remnants of it and memories handed down that people pined for the good old days. And so when the Muslim Empire arrived, Yes, they may have been Muslims going into what we now think of as Christian Europe, but for people who were living there, uh, the arrival of this empire probably seemed a lot more like what you heard about in the good old days when the Romans ruled there. So it may not have been uh, so much of an invasion to a lot of people, and we've seen that in many of the conquests. Well, as we said, this started from Morocco, which as you know is right across the Strait of Gibraltar from Spain. But not all of Morocco was uh, controlled by the Muslims at this time. You know, the Byzantines, who had once controlled all of this area, still had some colonies remaining, although they were greatly uh, weakened. Uh, the city of Sueta, which is no, uh, located on the Moroccan coast, and today is still controlled by Spain, was the Byzantine outpost of Septum. The ruler was a man named Count Julian, and uh, he was a Byzantine, but he paid tribute to the Visigoth king Roderick in Spain. Now, Roderick has a pretty nasty reputation, and the Visigoths had a pretty nasty reputation in general for the way they treated the people that they ruled in Spain. So, although Julian, uh, this Christian ruler, uh, technically paid allegiance to this Visigothic king, uh, things were not that uh, peaceful. In particular, Julian is said to have sent his daughter to the court of Roderick to be trained, which was, uh, again, a symbol of showing your allegiance to send your children to the king. 
Unfortunately, she was raped there, most likely by Roderick. Now, Julian was understandably upset, and he sought help. Of course, the Byzantines weren't in much of a position to help him because they were very weak. So he sought help from the nearby Muslim general Tariq ibn Ziyad, who controlled the city of Tangier, which is the Moroccan city right across the Straits of Gibraltar from Spain. Uh, the Muslims... Uh, Julian would have known, uh, were quite powerful. They had a strong state and it was expanding. So he went to help for the one person who could help him. Now, interestingly, Tariq was a slave of the Umayyad prince of North Africa, but had been granted his freedom for his great service and was made the ruler of Tangier. And we've seen this with uh, many people, important people in the Muslim empire. They started out as slaves and were appointed to uh, high positions. So anyway, we have Count Julian, who is quite upset and wants revenge. Now, he controls Sweta, which is a mercantile city, and it has a fleet of merchant, merchant ships, um, not really much of an army, but he knew that Tarek had a very successful army of Berbers. So they came together. Julian had the ships, Tarek had the army, which, although it sounds like a large army to us, it, it was only a few thousand men, and you're talking about conquering all of Spain. Well, the narrow strait that we today know as Gibraltar, with its famous rock, is where they landed, and they named that point after Tarek. The word Jebel means mountain in Arabic, so they named it Jebel Tariq, the mountain of Tariq, which became corrupted into Gibraltar. At any rate, the Umayyad Caliph back in Damascus sanctioned the attack, and he sent more troops very quickly. Uh, in a short amount of time, relatively, uh, Spain had fallen to the Muslim armies. So this, again, is evidence, although there was the justification, uh, this rape of Julian's daughter, and it was uh, a mission of justice or revenge, when the Umayyad Caliph heard about it, uh, he saw this as a lucrative conquest and was quite willing to um, take credit for it and join in on the attack. Now, whether this story is completely true, we don't know. But we do know that things were pretty bad and Roderick and the Visigoths were generally hated by the people in Spain. So this story pretty much fits with uh, the general picture we have on them. So it may have been a, a question of the fact that Tarek, being very, very sensitive to the political situation, realized that Spain was quite ripe for a, for a conquest and that people would probably support him, and he allied with this man, Julian, who had the merchant fleet. Okay, so uh, another issue here, of course, was the fact that Tarek did have an army ready to go. Now, in this uh, day and time, you don't just come up with an army very easily. And so what had been happening is there had been an unbroken string of conquests. And part of the problem with conquests, as anyone knows, is you have to keep the troops busy. And there's basically only one way to keep conquering troops busy, and that is to continue conquering. And so, although the conquest of Morocco had brought peace within the Muslim territory, you, you kind of needed to keep expanding. And in this case, it was not so much for the Arab troops from the core, uh, from the, you know, the region originally of the Arabian Peninsula and then later the Umayyad power base of Syria. Uh, they, were, they were largely busy garrisoning that huge, huge empire that they had. But Tarek relied on local Berber troops and you had to do something to keep them busy. So uh, the idea of continuing on into Spain, which was an area ruled by this really nasty, oppressive Roderick, uh, seemed to fit very well with what everyone wanted to do. Well, let's look a little bit about this land that they landed in. Now, Spain, or really the entire Iberian Peninsula, uh, the Visigoths ruled, uh, they were actually no more than 2% of the population. The majority of the inhabitants were people left over from the Roman province of Hispania after Rome had fallen to barbarian invasions. And so there was a very bitter divide between them, the local people, and the Visigoths. So the rape of Julian's daughter was pretty typical of the way the Visigoths treated the locals, and so it was very easy to believe. Cruelty was a major part of the way they ruled. 
And, but this was also a factor that led Tarek to believe that the population would support him and would actually uh, turn against the Visigoths. So when the Muslim army defeated Roderick's forces and killed him, the people were ra rather glad to see him go. So Tarek's army may have been pretty small, uh, certainly not enough to conquer this entire peninsula and garrison it, but Tarek was smart enough to realize if he could defeat Roderick in open battle and take him out, take out the head of the chicken, so to speak, uh, that the rest would go along with him pretty well, and they did. As had been the practice in the other Arab conquest, most of the cities were allowed to keep their religion and to rule themselves. I mean, Tarek and his bosses weren't all that interested in getting down and, and converting and micromanaging every little person. Uh, so basically, they just had to make a treaty with the Muslims, which for the most part was uh, more favorable than the treatment they were getting in terms of taxes and individual rights with the Visigoths. Now, a few major cities, uh, particularly Cordoba, which would become the capital, were conquered outright. But it only took about three years to take over all of Spain, which is pretty fast, particularly when we compare that with how long it is going to take uh, for the Europeans to retake Spain. Now, despite the great success of Tariq bin Ziyad, he was recalled to Africa by his boss, Musa bin Nusir, who showed up himself to take over. Now, sources are divided on why this happened. Some sources say that Musa was upset at his former slave getting the glory and wanted the glory for himself. Now, Musa himself was the son of a slave uh, who was freed, and he was the first independent governor of North Africa. Previously, it had been subordinate to Egypt, but you can see what's happening. The, the empire is expanding rapidly, so as it does, you have to create new provinces. So the first parts of North Africa are just expansions of this Egyptian territory. By this time, it had gotten so big, it becomes a separate territory with its uh, headquarters was in modern-day Tunisia. Musa bin Nusayr, the son of a slave, is the first independent governor of that area. By the time they spread all the way up into Spain, this becomes part of his territory as well. In any case, when the caliph heard about the great conquest, he summoned both Tariq and Musa back to Damascus, and they went. The issue was not whether Spain was a worthwhile possession. It was a great one. It had agriculture. It had a favorable climate. Uh, there was an infrastructure that was there that had been largely destroyed, but there was a lot to build on. So it was a great addition to the Muslim empire. Uh, the question was more about who was going to run it and who was going to get the credit for this. Well, what happened back in Damascus gets incredibly convoluted, but in the end, it's not going to matter much because the ultimate fall of the Umayyad dynasty itself, and if you remember your timeline, they are going to fall very shortly to the Abbasids, is going to throw everything into chaos. But the basic view at the time was that the caliph himself wanted to assert control over Spain. He didn't want someone like Musa Nusir just adding it on to his already growing and large province. Okay, so what happened to the Muslim advance after this is highly debated among historians. Uh, we may never have a consensus, and really it depends upon uh, which side you're looking at this from. So we've said that the Muslims made it all the way up to the, the northern borders of Spain in a very rapid advance, about three years. Now, they did cross the Pyrenees Mountains into France, which are a, a formidable barrier. This is what separates Spain and uh, France. And, and, of course, France does not exist at this time as an independent uh, kingdom, but the, it's beginning to come into shape with the Frankish kingdom, which is the forerunner of modern France. Now, this is sort of the problem uh, that the Muslims are going to run into. They have a, a relatively small army. And they've run over these barbarian tribes, largely with the, the support of the local populace. But it's really when they run into some uh, burgeoning kingdoms that they're going to have trouble. And this is the time when the first real European kingdoms were beginning to form from the wreckage of the barbarian invasions, what we call the Dark Ages. And of course, the, the strongest among these was, would be the Franks, who would become France. 
Anyway, one of the first great kings was Charles Martel, and of course the name means the hammer, Charles the Hammer, who would establish the Frankish kingdom, uh, and he was expanding southward to take over what would eventually become Spain, and he met the Muslim army coming north. In the year 732, one of the most famous battles in history, which became the Battle of Tours, or sometimes known the Battle of Poitiers, uh, and there's no question that the Franks won this battle. There's also no question that the Muslims would not expand any further into Europe after this. Uh, this would mark the high point of Umayyad expansion, and they would retreat back into Spain and never come out again. Now, what's not decided is how significant this was. The Western history books, particularly the classic history books, describe a Muslim juggernaut sweeping across Europe and swallowing everything, like this unstoppable force being defeated by Charles, who saved Europe from total conquest. I mean, this is the turning point in European history. This is the version I was uh, Taught. If not for Charles Martel, then Britain would have been a Muslim uh, colony. From here on out, the Muslims would be in slow retreat until centuries later when Damascus and Baghdad would be occupied by the Europeans. A more popular point of view, and particularly among historians of Islamic history, is that the Muslim conquest was running out of steam by this point. What Charles encountered was basically a raiding force come up to loot. And although he drove them back, they weren't going to do much anyway. And it's, it's further argued that the failed siege of Constantinople in the year 718, which was, again, the more recent time that the Umayyads tried and failed, was much more of an issue. And that really uh, stopped the Umayyads' momentum. Now, it's definitely true that Constantinople was number one on their wish list for conquests. Uh, and it's probably also true that the Muslim conquest, which was really more of a process of moving in to fill a lot of power vacuums, was running out of steam. By the same token, though, there's no reason to think that they had any intention of stopping. In fact, many of the other conquests had started out this same way. It started out with small raids, uh, small fights between tribes, probing, finding an area to be weak, and then moving in. That's basically what they did in Spain. Um, so the idea of this I mean, massive Muslim horde being heroically defeated by Charles Martel is just, that's factually not correct. But it is probably true that he did stop the advance uh, and prevented it from going any further. What really stopped the Muslims, though, was not just this military genius Charles Martel, but the presence of a strong expanding European state. This is the first time they ran into this, ran into a, a kingdom that was not falling apart, not in retreat, but actually growing, growing from a small Frankish kingdom to become modern France. And if we think about the other place that the Muslims got stopped, it was at the Byzantine Empire. It's Largely that, more than anything else, this strong European state is what they ran into and didn't have the power to keep going against. Okay, so we've talked about how the Iberian Peninsula uh, became part of the Umayyad Empire. Now let's talk about what it's like. Uh, although it would become a glorious civilization, and we're going to talk more in future episodes about its amazing scientific and artistic uh, accomplishments, it was racked with internal conflicts from the start. Now, that may sound pretty familiar to you by now. You've pretty much heard that about every place we've discussed so far. And yeah, it's pretty true. And so it's important for us not to conflate the external power of a state or an empire with internal peace. Now, some, some empires uh, would have both. I mean, they would be very strong uh, against outside empires and have pretty strong control at home. We think of the British Empire, for example. But in other cases, that's not necessarily true. Okay, and this is really the truth in the Muslim empire. Although it was a very strong empire, 
uh, against all its opponents and all those on its borders, there was constant fighting for power, not just in Damascus and Baghdad, the capitals, but everywhere, including Al-Andalus. Well, in this case, the main division was between the Arab and the Berber troops. And we have to remember that the Arabs were a pretty small population at this time, and they're a long way from home. They were already governing a very large empire, which is stretching from Persia all the way to Spain. Now, they did this by treating the locals fairly well and co-opting the support of a lot of local leaders, be it the Persians in the east, uh, eventually the Turks, of course, in the east, and the Berbers in the west. Now, we've discussed some of the reasons why these people would choose to follow the Muslims. I mean, Tariq's army was largely made up of Berbers, and they're really who pushed forth into the northern reaches of Spain. Uh, but once the invasion stopped and they settled down, things became different. Of course, peace is a little different than war. And so now it's time to set up government and of course, in the Middle Ages, that largely means setting up fiefdoms and princedom and handing out the spoils, and this is where the trouble starts. When Musa bin Nusir showed up with his own army, they were predominantly Arab troops, and they largely stayed in the south. Now, it's worth mentioning here that the actual ethnicity of Tariq bin Ziyad is not known and is highly speculated on. He may well have been a Berber himself, uh, he may not. And the same thing with uh, Musa. We're not completely sure what his ethnicity was. Okay. Uh, as we said, Musa sacked Tariq and sent him home. And so Musa then took the administrative organization of Spain for himself. He established five provinces, which were under the control of his North African state, based in Tunisia. Now, all historians generally agree that the Berbers got the worst of the deal. They were stuck in the north with the toughest terrain and the most difficult rebellions to deal with. Remember, they're, they're up close to the border with this expanding Frankish state. The Arabs got the largely agricultural plains of the south and center, and they were further from the Christian European states and closer to home. Well, this did not sit well, particularly as the Berbers had done the bulk of the fighting, and they were pretty used to fighting. Now, in the overall governing of Umayyad Spain, the Arabs would form the aristocracy, and they would dominate most of the overall government appointments. Now, when we discussed the Umayyads way back many episodes ago, we talked about how they established a truly elaborate bureaucracy. In the core, really the, the glue of that bureaucracy was the Arabic language. It, everything was done in Arabic. And it's important to bear in mind that when we're originally talking about these areas, particularly under the rapid conquest of the Umayyads, most of them were not Arab to begin with. I mean, today we consider Morocco, Egypt, Libya to be, quote, Arab countries. That's because they speak Arabic. Uh, ethnically, uh, the only people who started out uh, at, at this time speaking Arabic were on the Arabian Peninsula. And so when this Arabic Muslim culture comes out, it's going to be the Arabs from the peninsula, from Syria, who are going to get the plum jobs. They're going to be the chief administrators. Why? Because they've got the language. Uh, now, this was a very important uh, accomplishment. It enabled this huge empire to survive, and it laid the basis for Arab civilization as we know it, which is a great and wonderful thing. But in the local picture, uh, if you're a Berber, it kind of shuts you out of a lot of good deals. Now, worse for the Berbers, the Jews and Christians who remained in Iberia and worked for the Umayyads often got better jobs, as elsewhere in the army, it was they who had the technical expertise. And the Umayyads were smart enough to hire the people that they needed to hire. Okay, so this was not uh, doing like uh, Rumsfeld after the Iraq invasion, where he purged everybody who had been a member of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, they realized you needed the people who were experts. And so if the experts in running the irrigation canals uh, were Christians, and they were willing to stay and work. Well, you treat them well, you give them freedom, and they'll, they'll work for you. These people would be known as Mustarabin, which essentially means Arabicized. And that's what they were. They became Arabicized Christians and Jews. Uh, some of the leading scholars of the Middle Ages would be uh, Arabicized 
Jews and Christians in Spain. Well, all right, that seems a little bit unfair, but the real issue here is the Berbers were the bulk of the military. And as always up to this point, uh, you know, we're not talking about full-time soldiers. We're talking about largely pastoral people who can take up weapons when needed. I mean, the Arabs and the Berbers really never had the ability, at least uh, up until this point, to have a full-time standing army. Now, as they have a huge empire, they will. Uh, but the Berbers are people who can, uh, they can uh, tend their flocks and also um, go to war when they need be. Now, if there is one unquestionable rule in history, that is, if you entrust your military to any subgroup or any outside group, you can expect them to take over. Uh, we've talked about the Turks many, many times uh, so far. And that's essentially what the Berbers are going to try and do here. Okay, they realize that hey, we we have the power, uh, we have the actual uh, military power, and we are being shut out of the good deals. So we're going to exert that power. Now, actually, the Berber rebellion first began in Morocco, uh, where they were also the military backbone there. But the Berbers in El Andalus, who had contact with them, said, "Why don't we do the same thing?" Now, what would follow from this, I mean, it sounds like a farce if it didn't involve so many real lives in death, uh, but an Arab Umayyad force was sent out to Al-Andalus to put down the rebellion, and they did. But then conflict broke out between the Arabs who had already been in Al-Andalus and the newcomers who had just showed up uh, to put down the rebellion. So not only did we have an Arab versus Berber conflict, uh, which the Arabs essentially won. Uh, now we've got an Arab-Arab conflict about the people who have been there, you know, quote, the longest. Now the, the interesting thing is we're talking about Arabs who arrived 20 years before the next wave and they're asserting, hey, you know, this is our land. You know, we, we're the ones who own this. We've been here before you. Like we're, we're old timers now. We've been here all that long. So the new governor tried to appease these factions by giving separate fiefdoms to each of the major groups. This would lead to a major decentralization of power in Spain, uh, which is significant because remember Europe coming out at this time is beginning to be feudal and the idea of separate fiefdoms is uh, kind of the way they're organized. But the most loyal fighters, and those were the ones who were brought out from Syria, they didn't like this. They felt they should have got more preferential treatment. So they rebelled and they started what would be basically an independent state out there in Al-Andalus. Now remember, as I said, all these people had just shown up like 20 years earlier and now they're fighting over this land. By this time, the fighting in Al-Andalus and in North Africa, combined with all the other threats that the Umayyads were facing back home, meant that they essentially lost control over those areas, uh, and they were largely uh, independent. Now, as we've mentioned, the Umayyads would be overthrown by the Abbasids in the year 750. And remember, Tariq first crosses the straits in the year 711. So 39 years later, all these divisions going on, and now the entire Umayyad Empire, largest empire the world has seen, has been overthrown and replaced by the Abbasids. Now, you may remember from our discussions of the Abbasids, they would never control this far out. They would never really control Morocco, and they definitely never controlled um, Al-Andalus. They never controlled Spain. But the real irony is what happens. Uh, the Umayyad caliphs, of course, based in Damascus, who have just been overthrown, and they find themselves under vicious persecution from the Abbasids. Uh, the Abbasids essentially hunted down any members of the royal family they could find and killed them. And so it would be ironic that one member of the royal family, the son of a prince, 
whose name was Abdurrahman, would be known as Abdurrahman I, would be able to escape from Damascus. Now, he did not head west towards Al-Andalus. In fact, he went east, uh, and he had quite an adventure. The story of the pursuit of Abdurrahman by the Abbasids and his eventual arrival in Al-Andalus is something like an Indiana Jones story. I mean, it's very hard to believe if it were not true. Uh, He was chased through Iraq. He jumped into the Euphrates River to escape and made his way to Egypt where he was betrayed there and eventually would make his way all the way out to Morocco. And he had to lay low because they were hunting for him everywhere. He had many, many near brushes with with death, uh, but he would put out feelers and talk to some people in Morocco, and he would learn that uh, some of the Umayyads still had a lot of loyalists in Morocco, and they might well welcome a member of the Umayyad royal family to come and serve their cause. He has many more adventures in Morocco. He's almost killed. He's almost captured by Berbers. He goes to the city of Sueta again. He manages to make his way into El Andalus, uh, where he allies with some, uh, strangely enough, Yemeni soldiers who are there, who had been shipped all the way over from uh, the empire back in the previous conflicts. Uh, And again, he's chased all over uh, Al Andalus, but enough of the Umayyad clients there, uh, the people who had been loyal to the Umayyads, uh, still want to support him and they see him as an effective leader. And remember, of course, the uh, situation in Al Andalus had been fairly chaotic. Um, there had been a lot of conflict going on and power was not very centralized. So enough people put their money on Abdul Rahman uh, that he was able to defeat his rivals. And oddly enough, this escapee, this son of a prince from Damascus, ends up in Al-Andalus and declares himself the emir, the prince of Al-Andalus, and he may or may not have declared himself caliph at that time. Uh, It's not quite certain, but his descendants definitely would. And so the Umayyad caliphate would continue out in this distant province that the Umayyads had effectively lost control over uh, years before. And so that is where our story will stop for today, and we will pick it up with the next uh, installment discussing this Umayyad emirate and caliphate of Al-Andalus. And although we talk about the great Umayyad empire that was the largest in the world, that only lasted for a century. Uh, The Umayyad state in Al-Andalus would last for three centuries and would really flourish to be uh, one of the greatest civilizations, uh, quite ironically. So we hope you'll stay with us. Uh, Come back next time and hear about how Al-Andalus or Muslim Spain will grow to be one of the cultural centers of the world. We thank you so much for your kind attention. Shukran jazilan wa ma salama.